True examples of selflessness are breathtaking, particularly because we live in a world of fallenness where people can be so selfish and focused on self. So when we see true examples of selflessness, it captures our attention. Well, we have begun a series titled Seven Sayings from the Cross. Jesus spoke, or the Gospels record that Jesus spoke, seven times as he was hanging on the cross. We've been walking through those seven sayings one at a time leading up to Easter Sunday. And the saying that we're going to study this morning pictures the the selflessness, the incredible compassion of Christ. And if you were struggling this morning, as you walked in this room, trying to find a reason to worship King Jesus, I pray that when we're through, your heart will be overflowing with adoration and love for our selfless Savior. So keeping that in mind, turn with me to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. We have looked at two sayings of Jesus thus far. We looked at where Jesus, uh, as he was being crucified, said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. A, a cry of forgiveness. We looked at what Jesus said to one of the thieves on the cross when he said, Today you'll be with me in paradise after that thief called out upon his name. A uh, saying of salvation. You'll be with me in heaven. But today we're going to look at a saying of compassion found in John chapter 19. Let's begin reading in verse 23. I want to ask you this morning if you're physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's holy living word. John chapter 19 verse 23. The Bible says, When the soldiers had crucified Jesus... They took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunics. Notice there are four soldiers, four parts for uh, each soldier. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But, standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Four women are named here. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Let's pray together this morning. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
You are worthy of worship. You are worthy of praise. And we are so grateful that we can call you Father. We are so grateful that we can come into your presence in prayer. And we know that the gift of prayer is only available because of our great high priest, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins and who sits at your right hand, daily making intercession for us. We're so grateful that because Jesus died on the cross, the veil was torn in two. And we can, Lord, come into your, your presence with confidence, with boldness that you hear us when we pray. And God, we come calling out to you because we need you. Lord, we are completely dependent upon you. If anything profitable is going to happen in this hour, it's going to be because you moved in our midst. So Lord, by your Spirit, would you touch our hearts and change our lives. Open the eyes of our hearts that we might see the truths of Scripture and give us the wherewithal, the, the, the spiritual strength to obey what we learn and to apply what we learn. God, I pray that because the Word of God was preached this morning, we would leave this place transformed. So Holy Spirit, would you anoint me as I preach? I need you desperately. Holy Spirit, would you anoint the hearers? We need you desperately. Have your way in our midst. May the name of Jesus continue to be exalted in this moment. For it's in his name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. There's an interesting contrast here in the passage that we read. I called your attention to the fact that there are four soldiers there at the foot of the cross, four Roman soldiers in charge of overseeing the grisly crucifixion of Jesus and the robbers who were on either side of him. But in contrast, there are four women standing beside the cross. And there is a contrast intended here. Look what it says in verse 24, the end of that verse. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus, and the four women are mentioned. So that word, so, and the word, but, in the original Greek language, those words are men and day, and it's called a men-day construction. It's like saying this, on the one hand and on the other hand. So looking at the Greek syntax, we would say it like this. On the one hand, there were four soldiers playing games at the foot of the cross. On the other hand, there were four women standing in love, and devotion by their Savior. Do you see the contrast there? And and these four women are interesting. As you see the list there, it says that one was the mother of Jesus. Of course, that is Mary. His mother's sister, who's not named in this passage, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Now here's what's interesting. When you compare this list of the four women to other Uh, gospel writers who named the four women, and you put together the names they give, you begin to see who these four women are. By comparing the list, we can see that the the sister of Mary, just called the mother's sister there in verse 25, is probably Salome. She's called Salome in other uh, gospel passages. And here's what we know about Salome. Salome was the mother of James and John, disciples of Jesus Christ, the sons of Zebedee. So here's what that means. That means that Salome was Mary's sister, Jesus' aunt, which means 
that James and John were Jesus' cousins. Now that's an interesting insight, isn't it? And again, there's speculation about this, but if you compare the list, I believe that's what's being said here. You have Mary, the, the mother of Jesus, and you have Mary's sister who's not named. Now why would she not be named in this text? Because remember who's writing the Gospel of John. John is. And John never refers to himself by name. He just calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. He had a special relationship with Jesus. We'll talk about that in a few moments. So it's likely that because John didn't name himself, he also didn't name his mother. He just calls her Mary's sister. But other gospel writers say this is Salome. And so we see Mary, his sister Salome, mother of James and John, Mary, the wife of Clopas, also in other Gospels called the, the mother of James and Joseph. And then uh, we have Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene is an extraordinary woman. When Jesus encountered her for the first time, she was, uh, she was filled with seven demons. And Jesus, by his grace and power, cast those demons out of her life. And she became a faithful follower of Jesus for the remainder of his ministry Uh, And she's an extraordinary lady. And so as we see these four women standing by the cross, along with the Apostle John, uh, there with Mary and Mary's sister, his mother, Salome, probably, we see Jesus say something extraordinary. He makes a, a statement of great compassion, of great selflessness. And I want us just to think through this passage under Three different headings. I want to look at it from three different perspectives, if you will. First of all, I want you to notice the silent nobility of Mary. The silent nobility of Mary. It says there in verse 25, But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Now, we see there that Mary is standing by the cross as her son and the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is being crucified. There are no words recorded here that come from the lips of Mary. We simply see her standing. Now I want to just do a quick review, kind of a character sketch, if you will, of Mary's life. What we know about her from the Gospels, because it gives us great insight into this moment. You can just walk through your notes with me. First of all, Mary experienced the incredible blessing of being the mother of Jesus. The incredible blessing of being the mother of Jesus. You and I uh, know that Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary, conceived in her womb by the power of the Holy Spirit, and Mary gave birth to baby Jesus. Extraordinary story. And when the angel Gabriel comes to tell her that she would be the mother of of the God-man, she would be the mother of the Messiah, he says to her, Greetings, O favored one, Luke 1, The Lord is with you. So he calls her O favored one because she had the special privilege, the special blessing of being the mother of the Messiah. Wow. And so that's how the, the picture of Mary's life begins in the Gospels, the, the, the angel telling her this. And we also know that Mary had great faith because Mary submitted to God's perplexing plan. As the angel explains to her that the child in you will not uh, be a, a biological child from another man, you're a virgin, the child in you will be conceived by the power of the Spirit. As the angel 
describes this to to Mary. You can imagine being a young Hebrew teenage girl trying to comprehend all of this and what others would think. We know that Mary said in Luke 138, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And so Mary uh, models great, great submission to the will of God, surrender to the will of God. She says, whatever you want to do, God, I am your servant. Extraordinary young lady. And then we know that just after the birth of Jesus, that Mary was warned that great heartache awaited her. Over in Luke chapter 2, verses 34 and 35, when Mary and Joseph brought Jesus into the temple according to the law... They met a man there named Simeon who was described as one waiting for the day of the Lord, waiting for the the, the day of the Messiah to dawn. And God gave him insight when he saw Jesus that the baby that Mary and Joseph brought into the temple was the Messiah. And listen to what Simeon does. It says in verse 2 of Luke 34 and 35, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, listen, this child, the child she was holding, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. Listen, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. So he says to Mary, you're holding this baby. And God has sent this baby. He is the Messiah for Israel. And many will follow him, but many will stumble over him as well and will reject him. And you need to understand, Mary... That because of this child you hold in your arms a sword of grief and sorrow will pierce your very soul. And so even as Jesus was a baby, she had this forewarning of great pain. And so we fast forward to the crucifixion scene. And we come to this passage in John chapter 19 and we see that Mary is is standing by the cross. What do we learn from that? We learn that Mary chose to stand at the cross with her son and with her Savior. Now don't miss that. Jesus was her son. She was the, the mother of Jesus. But Jesus was also her Savior. I want you to understand that Mary was not perfect. She needed a Savior just like you and I need a Savior. She was born to a biologi- biologically to a mom and a dad. She was born with a sin nature. She sinned. She would need a Savior. And she knew this. In her great song called the Magnificat, listen to what Mary says. Singing a praise to God. She calls God, Luke 1, 46 and 47, she calls God her Savior. Oh God, my Savior. She knew that she needed a Savior. So as she is standing there by the cross, she's identifying with the pain of her son, and she's also watching her Savior purchase her forgiveness. Incredible scene. But can you imagine just for a moment the angst of that moment? Mary was experiencing at this moment exactly what Simeon had prophesied. Her soul was being pierced. Undoubtedly, she was probably the first one to 
to kiss the tender brow of baby Jesus. And now she sees him hanging there with a cruel crown of thorns thrust down upon that brow. Undoubtedly, many times she held the hand of of Jesus as he grew. And now she sees those hands nailed to a cruel Roman cross. And her very soul is being pierced. And yet she's there. Do you see the silent nobility of Mary? She's there. Identifying with Jesus as her son and identifying with Jesus as her Savior. The silent nobility of Mary. But there's a second thing we see here at the cross. Not only the silent nobility of Mary, but we see the stoic courage of John. The stoic courage of John. It says there, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. To the disciple, behold your mother. And so we see that that Jesus notices there on the cross that that Mary's there with the other women, but also John is there, his disciple. John, the the son of Salome, by by all probability. The brother of James, one of the sons of Zebedee. And again, he describes himself throughout the Gospels as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he's standing there at the cross. Now, again, a quick character sketch of John so we can understand the full import of this moment. First of all, John had a special relationship with Jesus. I want you to turn back with me to John chapter 13. I want us to go back just for a moment to the upper room on the night before Jesus was crucified. And Jesus shares a last supper with the disciples. And look at this description of the scene in John chapter 13, verse 23. One of the disciples whom Jesus loved, that's John, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So there's a a, a setting, there's a table, there are people, disciples gathered around the table, and the one who is by Jesus' side is John, the one whom he loved. So Simon Peter motioned to to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. Jesus has just said, someone's going to betray me. And so Peter kind of looks at John, ask him who it is. And so John, because he's closest, asks him, it says in verse 25, So that disciple, I love this, leaning back against Jesus, had a close relationship. He just leaned back against Jesus. He said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. And of course we know that he dipped the morsel and gave it to Judas who would shortly thereafter betray Jesus. But notice the proximity of John to Jesus. He's right there by his side. He's comfortable enough that he just leans back against Jesus. There's a, there's a special relationship that we see here. Now we know that there are different numbers of disciples that followed Jesus that he interacted with in different ways. For example, we know that there were 120 faithful folks that followed him in a large group. and He would teach them in large teaching times. And, and he would send them out for ministry and different things. And we know that after he was 
uh, crucified and after he rose again before the day of Pentecost, there were 120 in the upper room praying, anticipating God sending his power so that they could be witnesses for the gospel. So we see 120 in the gospels. Then we see kind of a smaller group mention of 70 that Jesus spent a little bit more time with, a little bit more focus on giving them instructions for missionary journeys, and he sends these 70 out, and, and we get some insight. There was a smaller group that Jesus focused on among the 120. And then, even among the 70, there were 12 that followed him everywhere he went. There were 12 disciples that he prayed all night before he chose them, and he, and he prayed on the mountain. He came down and chose 12 disciples for three years they went with him everywhere. They talked together. They laughed together. They ate together. They, they traveled together. They were with him everywhere. They saw him up close. They saw his miracles. They heard his teaching. They had a front row seat for the life and the public ministry of Christ. So you had the 120 and the 70. Then you had the 12. But even among the 12, there was a smaller group that Jesus spent a little bit more time with. Peter and James... And John, Peter and the sons of Zebedee. And he spent a little bit more time, like when he went on to the Mount of Transfiguration, who did he take with him? Not a trick question. Peter and James and John. And we see him taking them apart for special functions uh, every so often. And even among the three, it seems like he had the closest relationship with John. He calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. So John had a special relationship with Jesus. But also, here's what you need to understand. John fled when Jesus was arrested. Turn to Matthew 26. I want to show you this. Matthew 26. Verse 56. This passage tells the story of the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus. And it says in verse 56, But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples, everyone say all. All is a small word with big implications. And it says all the disciples left him and fled, including John. They they fear for their lives. There are people there with with clubs and weapons and there's soldiers and temple guardsmen and, and there's, there's wrath and there's fury. And, and when Jesus is arrested, betrayed by the kiss of Judas, the rest of the disciples flee. They get out of there, fearing for their own life. But here's the third thing I want you to see about John. After this, John courageously chose to stay in close proximity to Jesus. Look over in John 18. I want to show you what happens shortly after he flees. John chapter 18, verse 15. This is when Jesus is taken into the residence of the high priest. It says there, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door, so the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out, spoke to the servant girl, kept watch at the door, and brought Peter in. And so again, John doesn't refer to himself by name. So we see from that that this is the, the, the disciple John. And at some point, after he flees, he begins to think. 
my Savior, my Master, my Rabbi, my King, my friend, is by himself in the midst of an angry mob. And at some point, John makes the courageous decision to go back to be close to Jesus. And he has some influence. It says here the high priest knows him. His his father was was Zebedee, who probably was a wealthy man based upon the fishing business his sons were involved in. And so he had some some connections, if you will. And because of his connections, he got Peter in the door. Which led to Peter denying Jesus three times. But isn't it interesting that after John fled, he comes to just be close to Jesus in the moment of his darkest hour. And we read at the cross, who was standing there? Mary and Mary's sister Salome and this other Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. And then you had Mary Magdalene and John. And so John courageously chose to stay in close proximity to Jesus. Now here's why all that's important. Here's why I walked you through all that. There was a time when John fled. He did not want to be identified with Jesus, but now he wants to be close to Jesus. Here's the application for you and for me. If you find yourself far away from Jesus, guess what? You can draw near to him today. Just like John. Just like John, A.W. Pink writes this, Is there one who reads these lines that has wandered away from the side of the Savior, who is no longer enjoying sweet communion with Him, who is, in a word, a backslider? Perhaps in the hour of trial you denied Him. Perhaps in the time of testing you failed. You have given more thought to your own interest than His. The honor of His name, which you bear, has been lost sight of. Oh, may the arrow of conviction now enter your conscience. May divine grace melt your heart. May the power of God draw you back to Christ, where alone you find your soul can find satisfaction and peace. Here, he writes, is encouragement for you. Christ did not rebuke John on returning. Instead, his wondrous grace bestowed on him an unspeakable privilege. Cease then your wanderings and return at once to Christ and He will greet you with a word of welcome and cheer. If you have wandered away from Christ, you're not close to Him like you used to be. Listen, just like John, you can stop and say, No, I want to be near my Savior. And you can run back to Him and identify your life with Him and stand with Him just like uh, John stood at the cross with Jesus. There's a well-known story about a Prussian king named Frederick the Great who was widely known as an agnostic. And one night he was having a banquet with some of his top leaders. One of the men that was at this banquet was a man named General von Zeeland, who was well known as a devout Christian. And during this banquet, this king began to make jokes about Jesus. He began to make crude jokes about 
our Christ. And the hall was filled with revelry and laughter as people laughed at this king mocking Jesus. Until General von Zeeland stood up. And here's what he said to the king of Prussia. He said, Sir, you know I have not feared death. I fought and won 38 battles for you. I'm an old man. I shall soon have to go into the presence of one greater than you. The mighty God who saved me from my sin. The Lord Jesus Christ whom you are blaspheming. I salute you, sire, as an old man who loves his Savior. On the edge of eternity. The place went silent. And the king replied, General von Zeeland, I beg your pardon. I beg your pardon. And people began to silently leave the hall. In the midst of great blasphemy, surrounded by enemies of Christ, this general stood up and courageously identified himself with Jesus. What a powerful statement. And I wonder if you have the same kind of courage that General von Zeeland displayed and John displayed at the cross. Even though you may be surrounded by unbelievers, perhaps in your home or in your school or in your workplace, though you're surrounded by people that do not know Christ and do not, do not care to, to, to speak of Christ, even, and if they do, it's in a blaspheming way. Even though you're surrounded by unbelievers, I wonder if you have the courage to stand as a disciple of Christ, unashamed, courageous, bold, Because you know that Jesus is your only hope. And you know that Jesus is the only hope of those who are blaspheming his name. The stoic courage of John. But there's a final final heading that I want to discuss very quickly. We've seen the silent nobility of Mary. We've seen the stoic courage of John. But third and last, I want you to see the selfless concern of Jesus. The selfless concern of Jesus. Look what it says back in John 19. Verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother, Mary, and the disciple whom he loved, John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his home. Notice what Jesus saw. He saw his mother and he saw John standing there, both experiencing great loss as he died on the cross. And then Jesus said to Mary, behold your son. And to John, behold your mother. Now we see three things in this this action, these words from Jesus. First of all, we see that he is loving his mother. Jesus was born to Mary. He loved his mom, right? He loved her. And so by him saying, behold your son, he's saying, listen, he's the one that's going to take care of you. John, behold your mother. You're the one that's going to take care of her now. He wanted to make sure that that his mother would be well provided for when he was no longer physically upon the earth. Now, some scholars say, why didn't he commend Mary to his brothers? You know, after Mary married Joseph, they had more children. She had some sons. Why didn't Jesus say, your sons can take care of you? Well, probably they weren't here. And also, they were unbelievers at the time. 
So he, he, he wants a, a, a believing disciple to watch for his mother, to watch out over his mother. So he, he loves his mother. Secondly, he's honoring his mother. Even in death, he's honoring his mother. You know, it was Jesus as God who gave us the Ten Commandments, right? And what did Jesus say? Honor your father and your mother. And so Jesus here is obeying that commandment. He's honoring his mother to make sure she's taken care of when he's no longer physically upon the earth. He's also providing for his mother. You know, it's interesting to note that after the childhood years of Jesus, Joseph is never mentioned again throughout the Gospels, which probably means that Joseph was dead. He had passed away at some point, which means that Mary was a widow. And it's very difficult for widows to subsist in, in, in the first century. So in a very practical way, he's providing for his mom. John, you make sure that you take care of Mary. Mary, John will take care of you. Very practically here, he's providing for his mother. But here's the amazing thing, if you look in your notes. The context of this story speaks to the selflessness of Jesus. He's taking care of these issues while he's hanging on the cross. D.A. Carson writes, It is wonderful to remember that even as he hung dying on a Roman cross, suffering as the Lamb of God, he took thought of and made provision for his mother. Bruce Milne writes, As Jesus hangs there with the burden of a world's redemption upon his shoulders, he finds time to express his personal loving concern for his mother and one of his special friends. Amazing that even though Jesus is dying on the cross, bearing the sins of the world, taking the wrath of God for all of our junk, he displays this selflessness. I mean, would any of us have blamed Jesus if he said, you know what, I'm dying on the cross right now for the sins of the world, somebody else take care of the situation. That's not who Jesus was. Even as he's suffering and dying, he's showing compassion for others. Extraordinary selflessness. I read a story about Scottish prisoners of war in World War II. They were well known as having a buddy system. In other words, if you were a prisoner of war and there were other Scottish soldiers with you, you paired up into a buddy system to watch out for one another. And, and they called their buddies muckers. And so there's a story of this one Scottish POW named Angus McGilvery. And he has a mucker. He has a, another prisoner of war that he is watching out for. And this buddy was dying. Everybody knew he was dying. He wasn't going to make it. Well, Angus decided... He's going to make it. I'm going to make sure that my buddy lives. Well, one night, his buddy's blanket was stolen by another prisoner of war. Angus put his blanket over his buddy. And when his friend kind of stirred and asked, he said, I came across an extra one. And, and, and then Angus, when he would get his food for the day, he, he took it to his buddy. And he fed him with his own food to give him extra food to be strengthened. And when his friend asked, he said, well, we just had some extra rations today. And he began to just do everything he could 
to see that his buddy, his friend, would live. Well, his friend began to improve. He began to get stronger. But one day, you know what they found? They found Angus slumped over dead beside his buddy. Because he wasn't getting the nutrition and the things he needed. He was giving them all away. Extraordinary picture of selflessness. And that's what this story we've read in John is all about. The selfless concern, the selfless selfless compassion of Jesus. Now, you might be here this morning and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Yeah, it's his mom. Of course, and, and, and John, he was real close to her. Of course he's going to do something nice for them. Can I expect that same kind of compassion from Jesus in my day-to-day living? Does Jesus care for me the way he cared for Mary and John? Let me show you a very interesting verse. Turn with me. It's going to be the last thing we look at. Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, verse 19. The Bible says, Then his mother and his brothers came to him. It's during his, his ministry. But they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, Jesus was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. How does Jesus answer? This is a teachable moment. Look at what he says. He answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. In other words, listen, look at me, look at me. If you're a follower of Christ, a faithful follower of Christ that takes his word seriously... Christ cares for you like family. You're family. And so the same compassion that he showed to Mary and John is a compassion that he pours out upon us day after day after day after day. On the cross, Jesus was a savior of selfless compassion. But I want you to know that he died on that cross and he was buried and he rose from the dead and he's alive today and he's still a savior of selfless compassion. He cares about you deeply. And this story reminds us of that fact. Here's how I would sum it all up. Jesus is worthy of our love and devotion because he died for us and cares for us so much. He is a savior of great compassion. A savior of great compassion. If you walked in this room this morning and you were, you were struggling with, with a reason to worship Jesus, worship him because of his selflessness. Worship him because of his compassion for you and for me. He's worthy of worship and praise. Charles Wesley wrote a great hymn called Love Divine, All Loves Excelling. And in that hymn it says this, Jesus, thou art all compassion. I love this. Pure, unbounded love thou art. In other words, Jesus loves us. Isn't that amazing? Jesus loves us.